When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Rico! Off-season edition. I think I'm enjoying off-season Rico more than I enjoyed regular season Rico. But on this edition of Rico Bronia, we look back at some aspects of the failed 2023 season. The season that officially goes in the books as a 75-87 and win season. They were indeed awarded that win from the suspended game against the Miami Marlins. And this episode will be our exit interview of this season. So, The format is very simple. There are 10 questions. Pete will answer them. I will answer them. We'll give opinions. Some may be the same. Some certainly may be different in regards to what happened in this 2023 season. Some positive, some negative. It's obviously going to mostly be negative considering this season sucked, considering this was a failed season. So a little bit of a break from the Billy Epler stuff, a little bit of a break from the investigation into the New York Mets. Just a sad, depressing look back at the 2023 season. Later on during this offseason, we will debate if this is the worst season in Mets history. I look forward to that debate because there are many seasons from our lifetime that are certainly on that Mount Rushmore of bad. Well, this definitely ranks up there regardless. There's no doubt about it, right? Oh, no doubt. This is in the Mount Rushmore. No question about it. It's just a matter of does it pass other seasons. But more on that later. Uh, Let's start the exit interview with a positive. And that is the team most valuable player. Uh, I remember when we were at the All-Star break, I kind of made the argument to you, Pete, that David Robertson was the MVP of the team. And I stood by that. He was so valuable with how well he was pitching out of the bullpen. Well, he barely was on the team in the second half of the year because a few weeks in, the Mets made that shocking decision to trade him to the Miami Marlins. So, spoiler alert, David Robertson is not my team MVP, but I'll let you go first, Pete, on this. Uh, There's a couple of different ways you can go, but it's your call. MVP of this 2023 season. Well, I I think the easy choice for me is Francisco Lindor because the guy put together a 30-30 season. He got better as the team got worse. Um, and he, you know, he was there every day, you know, even when I I think it was a, um, I think they had a kid, he had a kid and he still wanted to play ball. He showed up every day and he was just a true leader of the team. So, you know, putting together this type of season that doesn't happen often for the Mets, but there's only been three other players to do it. I I would, I would say that he is the guy because he was been, he was the most consistent everyday player. Yeah. So it comes down to Lindor. Alonzo, 
falls a little bit short. Brandon Immo falls a little bit short. To me, it comes down to two guys. It comes down to Francisco Lindor and Kodai Senga because Lindor went out there and started 159 games. He played in 160 games, like you mentioned. His overall numbers are fine. He, like everybody else, Alonzo too, slumped when they needed him the most, but I think that was everybody. You know, when you look back at June, which really kind of killed this season, nobody was hitting. Nobody was performing at a high level. So you got Lindor, whose overall numbers are fine, 31 home runs, 98 RBIs, the 31 stolen bases, and 806 OPS, just a shade under Pete Alonzo. He far and away had the best war on the team if you factor that in. Overall, his defense was good. There were some pivotal errors he made throughout the season. More on that later. But the reason I kind of fight towards Senga is this. There was nobody else. I mean, when you think about this rotation in 2023 and you think about the innings they got out of their starters, there was nobody else. You know, Max Scherzer was there for a short period of time, and even he wasn't that good. Verlander was, I thought, better, obviously, than Scherzer and was solid, but you're only talking about 16 starts, and they missed him when they needed him the most. So who was actually there from beginning to end? And Kodai Senga was. And I know early in the season he wasn't giving them enough innings, some by choice of the Mets. They weren't pitching him on regular rest. Again, choice by the Mets. But at the end of the day, this rotation got very, very little out of anybody not named Kodai Senga. And his numbers are just so distinct from everybody else. So I think Lindor is a fine answer, and there's nothing wrong with it. But in a lot of ways, I think Kodai Senga was even more valuable because of the fact that they were getting nothing every five days from their other starting pitching. He ended up throwing 166 innings, which is 40 more innings than the most innings from the next starting pitcher. He had a 2.98 ERA. Guy went out and made every single start, 29 of them, and he got better as the season went on. So I'm not trying to be too cute with this because I think Lindor is a fine answer, but because they got so little from the rest of the rotation, I'd actually say the team MVP was Kodai Senga. Yeah, that was my other option. That was my other choice. I think those are the only, honestly, I think those are the only two you could even say on the team. There was really no one else. No one else played enough. No one else was was visible enough. No one, uh, others had way too long of a slump to really be considered. But you're right. The Sega factor is he got better throughout the every, with every start. I mean, my criticism was really early on about he walks too many guys, lets too many guys on base. Even then, he was fine. It wasn't until like the second half where he really started to become this like elite level pitcher. Yeah. No, I, I get you. All right. Number two. Now we go to the negative. And you can answer this however you want. The biggest disappointment of 2023 from an individual player. And I'm telling you, there's like 10 different candidates. So would you want me to go first, Pete, or would you like to kick this one off as well? You go first because I'm torn between like 17 names. (laughs) He wants me to go first so he can like, it's like we're in high school again. He's going to cheat from my uh, paper. Well, I don't want to double down because, listen, I mean, there's so many people to go to. I wouldn't want to have the same name. But, I mean, like, I there really is, like, a, there's so many levels of disappointment on this team. It, it's so frustrating. But you you go. You go. You do it. Yeah, so I'll go through all the different candidates. Obviously, you'll mention some of these, and maybe one of these will be your guy. Max Scherzer's an absolute candidate. I mean, right off the top. Because we just talked about how bad the starting pitching was. 
and Max Scherzer, A, let them down whenever they needed him the most. Like every start that was considered relatively big, whether it's the game at City Field against the Yankees, whether it's in Atlanta against the Braves, whether it's the game against the Red Sox on a Saturday night at Fenway Park, which really turned out to be the end of his tenure here when you really think about it. He came up small in every big spot. And then you factor in the sticky stuff from earlier in the season. They certainly needed him then. And then he's out of the rotation for a period of time while Verlander's on the IL. I think Max Scherzer is an absolute fine candidate. Um, I think that offensively, for the first half of the season, because his numbers ended up being, you know, I don't want to say good, but turned out to be certainly more respectable than the way they looked for a while, was Jeff McNeil. I mean, Jeff McNeil was a guy that won a batting title a year earlier And I'll give Jeff this. The guy went out there and played every single game. And his final numbers turned out to be a lot more respectable than the way they looked for the first half of the season. But Jeff McNeil was certainly a disappointing candidate. Starling Marte, I think statistically, you could certainly argue is the answer. Because A, Starling Marte barely played in the second half of the season, which turned out to be a good thing because he was so putrid. So putrid. Marte and McNeil almost rivaled each other. In terms of big disappointment, the difference was Jeff was at least able to finish the season strong. Starling didn't, barely played, and McNeil was a lot more versatile and played a lot better defensively. But I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to give you the guy, and it may surprise you. The most disappointing player in 2023 was Brett Beatty. Because Brett Beatty was one of the main hopes for where this offense was going to self-improve. For how this offense... Coming off a year in which statistically they were good in 2022, but how were they going to get better? That was one of Pete's biggest concerns. That was a lot of people's concerns. And I thought the way they were going to do that was with their prospects developing. Now, more on Francisco Alvarez a little bit later on. Overall, I think you'd have to be pretty happy with the 25 home runs you got out of Francisco, despite the low average, despite the relatively low OPS, despite the peaks and valleys of his season. I think overall you look at Alvarez and say, hey, he was really good defensively at 25 home runs. He did perform the way you would hope. Brett Beatty was a massive disaster. And considering we pushed in spring training, we all did. He's got to make the team. He's got to make the team. He's got to be the third baseman. Eduardo Escobar slumping. Beatty's got to make it. Beatty's got to make it. And he didn't, as we all recall. He was sent down to AAA, and then he tore the freaking cover off the baseball. He went down to AAA, and let, picked up right where he left off from his success in spring training. And so, again, we're sitting there throughout early April screaming, you got to call up Brett Beatty. You got to call up Brett Beatty. When's Brett Beatty coming up? Brett Beatty, Brett Beatty, Brett Beatty, Brett Beatty. He's tearing up AAA Syracuse. Eduardo Escobar is struggling. And they finally decide, you know what? Let's just do it. <laughs> you know, let Let's just call up Bill, uh, Brett Beatty and see what this kid has. And considering how hot of a prospect he is, how high of a prospect he is, how well he performed in spring training when we saw him from day one and what he was doing at the AAA level, he comes up in the middle of April, we're all ecstatic, and he hit a little bit early on. Like he came up and he was not bad. I'd say for the first three weeks of his tenure with the Mets, He was relatively productive. And then he fell off the rooftop. It wasn't his defense. It was his offense. He saw his batting average dip and dip and dip. And he couldn't hit lefties and dip 
and dip until finally the Mets decided to send him down in the middle of August. The fact that was even an option was incredible. But his average had dipped so low, 216, 289 OPS, a 620 OPS when they finally send him down. 289 on base is what I meant to say. So they send them down. And at that point, it's a lost season. The Mets had already sold off. They're going nowhere. Even when they recalled him three weeks later, there wasn't really much he could do to help his value. And then he was worse. And over the final month of the year, he continued to struggle. He had a couple of moments, hit a home run against the Marlins, uh, hit a home run against the Phillies. Like he had some flashes but Brett Beatty's overall numbers were absolutely putrid. He ended up hitting 212 for the season with a 598 OPS. And I think when you combine that with the hope that we all had at the beginning of the season, and I don't even know what we think of him now. You know, he's about to turn 24 years old. Is he given an opportunity to win the third base job next year? Is he handed the third base job next year? Is Beatty back in AAA next year? I think we go into this offseason with complete uncertainty about what Brett Beatty is. And while there are a lot of options for disappointments, a lot of those disappointments are veteran players, and you move on from them. Brett Beatty is supposed to be the future of this team, and now we're uncertain about what he is. So my answer for biggest disappointment, Brett Beatty. Well, uh, good thing you went first because I wasn't going to choose him anyway. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't talk about the elephant in the room, Daniel Vogelback. And now I guess he's not disappointment because we all knew he sucked before the season started. I guess so. I guess you can't. I guess you can't throw that in there. I my biggest disappointment might surprise you, but it's Justin Verlander because this is almost the Aaron Rodgers effect. We once we sign Justin, once we say goodbye to Jacob Degrom. Justin Verlander, I don't even think Max Scherzer, I believed he was going to be as good as he was last year anyway. I didn't think he was going to stay healthy. So I was, I looked at the season as Justin Verlander, the Cy Young winner from last year, is coming to be a Met. This is our guy. This is going to be our horse in the, in, the, in the rotation that we're going to have to rely on. And he pitched 16 games, and they were probably meaning Every single one of them was probably meaningless. He, he didn't pitch lights out. He uh, only 81 strikeouts in 94 innings. 94 innings, dude. That's pathetic. We spent we spent 40 million dollars for 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 94 innings. <laughs> it's gross. I mean, I mean, listen, Edward Diaz pitched less than that, but still, he got hurt the whole season. It, it, this was just as far as a overhyped free agent signing. This was one of the most brutal signings of all, and we barely got to use him. I, I see what you're saying. You know, the idea that we paid this man or Steve Cohen paid this man $45 million for this season and then really more when you factor in the paying off part of the contract next year and he only made 16 starts. It's weird. <laughs> He's like never. He was almost like he was never a Met. That's sort of the way I look at Justin Verlander. He's going to be a forgotten about mercenary while Max Scherzer won't be. You know, Max Scherzer will be one of those guys we boo when we see him in a highlight video 10 years from now. I don't know if that's the case with Verlander. The problem, uh, the thing I push back on is that he wasn't bad. Like, the circumstances is what really led to the fact that he only made 16 starts as a New York Met. It wasn't necessarily him. He was a small part of it. Like, he wasn't perfect. Uh, you know, one start in particular jumps out at me is him coming up small in Atlanta 
in the finale of that series in June. But his only making 16 starts was a lot more because of other people than it was him. Yeah, but here's the thing is, he this team was flailing. And like you said, that, that Atlanta start where he went three innings and gave up four runs or five Brutal. five runs. It was terrible. Brutal. But but prior to that too, like he in the first in, in May, he had two starts where he gave up six runs in five innings. That it wasn't really lights out of Justin Verlander. He didn't start getting good until June twenty sixth. By then, we were done. All right. Now speaking of which, here's the next question in the exit interview. The moment you knew this season was effed. And there's a lot of ways you can go with this because there were a lot of moments throughout this season where I think we all looked in the mirror and said, "Uh uh-oh, it's not turning around. The ultimate moment we knew it was effed, you could certainly go to the trade deadline. You can go to trading Scherzer on that Saturday, trading Verlander a few days earlier, uh, later, trading Robertson a few days earlier, or maybe it's an individual game. Maybe there's a certain game that jumps out at you or a certain stretch of the season where you just knew... This is not turning around. And I'll start it off because I had a few of them. I certainly had a few of them. Um, I'll never forget the Mets had that incredible homestand against Tampa Bay and Cleveland in late May. We even did a, a drive home podcast. You can check the archives in which I'm ecstatic. You're ecstatic. We're back. This is the winning streak we needed. And they very quickly turn around and lose a bunch of games on the road trip, that following road trip, against the Cubs and the Rockies. Where I really started to wonder was they come back to City Field and they sweep the Philadelphia Phillies. And they're sitting there at 30-27, and three and a half games out of first place, and they've got a three-game series with the Blue Jays before they go to Atlanta. And on a Friday night, they face Chris Bassett, whose wife was in labor. Bassett pitches through it anyway and then says, hey, as soon as I'm done... I get on the plane, I'm out, and he delivered, I think it was seven scoreless innings, outdueled Verlander, Mets lose 3-0. But the game that really concerned me was the next day. It was a Saturday late afternoon against the Blue Jays, and that's where two big things happened. A, Francisco Lindor made an error that really changed the game. I think it was in the sixth inning. And then Buck Showalter made arguably the worst managerial decision of his tenure as Met manager. And that was when he elected to face Vladimir Guerrero Jr. with Kevin Biggio on deck. Vlad rips a double. Mets threaten and come up short the ninth. And they lose 2-1. to one. And all of a sudden, like all that winning seemed to get erased. They lost the next day, got swept by Toronto. Then they go to Atlanta. And that's the House of Horror series where they blew three consecutive three-run leans capped off by that 13-10, 10-inning loss right after. And that's when they fell under 500. They started to sink. The division was gone. I mean, the division was over right after that series against Atlanta. So that was like kind of point number one of, uh uh-oh, what the hell's going on? I thought we had turned it around. I thought we were back. And then all of a sudden, you're getting swept at home by the Blue Jays and get swept in Atlanta. But then we had a few more teases, specifically right before the All-Star break. When they went on that West Coast trip, they finished strong by winning a home series against the Giants. They go to Arizona. They win three straight. Now, at this point, the division's gone, but they're slowly getting back into it. 
and they win the opener in San Diego against the Padres. They're 42 and 46, and I'm feeling better about, all right, they're going to go into the break strong, and here we go. And then they lose the final two games of that series to San Diego. They come out of the break. They lose two out of three to the L.A. Dodgers. And it was almost like, hey, they took the step forward and they went back. But the real moment of clarity, and this is why Max Scherzer deserves so much hate, was in Boston. I made that trip to Boston, as you recall, for that three-game series. They won the opener, that cheap little rain delay. Let's pick it up the next day opener. And then Max Scherzer with a lead on Saturday night at Fenway just flushed it down the toilet. And that was the moment, sitting at Fenway Park with my family, where I turned around and said, they're not making a run. Like, this is just not happening. And maybe the, Met, maybe the Mets agreed because they made the trade of David Robertson less than a week later during that series against, well, I think the beginning of that series against Washington. That's when they said, okay, we're out. And then obviously by the weekend's end, everybody's gone. And then they got swept by the Royals and the Orioles and the season's over. So I know I gave like five different answers. I think I'm ultimately going to say Boston because there was a part of me that held out hope deep in my soul that they would at least get hot and make things interesting. And when Max Scherzer flushed it down the toilet on that Saturday night in Boston, even that dream was gone. Yeah, I think that some people are going to say it's somewhere between uh, Edwin Diaz getting hurt and David <laughs> Robertson getting traded. I re- honestly, it's somewhere in between there. Somewhere no in between, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to that Houston series, and I'm not really sure why I pinpoint that as much, but they went out to Houston. They were they went and beat the crap. Scherzer actually pitched yep. well, yep. and they won 11 to one. And it's like okay, they're 34 and 38 after that game. And there's still a ton of there's like 12 games behind at that point in time. But I'm like, dude, Verlander is going to win this series. Because that's right now at this point in time. The Mets haven't won a uh, series in, I've uh, what, like a month or whatever it was. It was, it, yeah. was, it was terrible. Yep. So we're at this point where if we could win this series, we don't need to sweep it. Just win the series, and that's a good start. And let's get past this schneid. And if you look at teams like the Nationals, like the Braves, like the Phillies in the past, where they've hit poor points, usually it's June when they make their move. And the Mets lost a heartbreaker. They lost four to two to Houston the next day with Verlander on the mound. It was a quick game. It was two two hours and eleven minutes, and it just breezed by. And like, there's no chance they're winning this game at all. And then the next next game was just a crappy game. We lose 10, 10 to 8. I think we were in it for a little bit. But, again, I think that that series solidified. We went back from being four games over under five, uh, 400, four games under 500, excuse me, back to six, and it just spiraled. I mean, we went we went from four games under 500 to uh, the next time we won a game, I think we were to at least 10 games under 500. Yes, it the the letting go of the rope happened quick. That game you mentioned, that finale of that series against the Astros, I was on the air. It was one of the last shows. <coughs> Excuse me. It was one of the last shows Craig and I did together. And it was such a back-and-forth game for the first five innings. They were down 2 nothing. They came back, took a 3-2, 4-2 lead. Then they go down 6-4. Then they instantly tied at 6. Then they go down 9-6. Then it's 9-8. They end up losing 10-8. It was just one of those crazy kinds of games and it was in kind of indicative about what they were here they come out and they score a lot of runs against the Astros and they lose 
The day before that, they couldn't score any runs against Framber Valdez. They lose 4-2. to two. It was a part of what made them such a struggle all year, that even on the days where they hit, they wouldn't pitch well. On the days where they pitch well, they wouldn't hit. But you're right, it was... Look, we all make that decision personally when we give up. And by give up, it doesn't mean we're stopping, stop watching the games. It's the moment where we say, this ain't happening. Like, this isn't... We're not going to be the Nationals of 2019. It's not happening. We're not going to be the Braves of 2021. Obviously, the final nail in that were the trades. No question. But there was some time before that for all of us where it hits you. Like, I remember with my dad, when they lost the opener of the series against the Yankees at City Field, they lost 7-6. Max Scherzer blew the lead. They gave him a big lead early. That was the moment I could tell in my dad's eyes he knew we were screwed. It was 5-1 to in the fourth inning, and Max Scherzer took a huge dump all over the field. <laughs> That's a, look, there's a common bond here, a common thread here. Max Scherzer crapped the bet a lot. And that's just that's just the reality. Like he was a bad met more so than his numbers will ever tell the story on because so many of these games that we refer to involve him effing up. Him kind of letting go with a leash if you will. So I know that game in the middle of June during the height of their losing was when I could see it in my dad's eyes. All right, this ain't happening. And obviously they didn't. And then it all came to a crashing halt after the trade deadline and then the sweep at the hands of Kansas City and then Baltimore. I'm going to let you start off with this exit question because I think you were very passionate about it and you have a strong opinion about it. And that was, what was your biggest worry heading into the season that turned out to be 100% true? Oh, I mean, I think the biggest for me was we needed an extra bat. I, I think that that was something that we needed a DH. That was the bit. That was the most yep. obvious thing in the world. Yep. I mean, rather than split Daniel Vogel back, and we were that Darren Ruff was going to make the freaking roster. I mean, geez, I thank God that didn't happen. You imagine that. Imagine it was Ruff Vogel back first two months of the season. <laughs> I mean, well, we would have jumped ship early, so much earlier. But yeah, that would have that would have been the killer. But yeah, the fact that we they overcommitted to that, and the fact that all the all those details came out that Buck didn't even want to do it, Buck didn't want to play him, and we had to endure that all. Se- like, I mean, honestly, real quick, let's take a pause. As Met fans, we should just pat ourselves on the back and say, you know what, we did a good job handling that. We knew that was the <laughs> wrong move, and we still rooted for this team and try to do our best to support this team. I mean, I for crying out loud, at one point in time, I tried to beg them, the, uh, you know, people to vote for him to go to the All-Star game, okay? <laughs> I was doing whatever I possibly could, and it didn't work, but that was the most obvious. Anybody else but Daniel Vogelback, a true DH, would have been more impactful to this team. Yeah, you turned out to be right, because you did scream it a lot, and there were certain names of guys that you wanted to add And I kind of looked at who they had, especially some of the younger players they had and thought they would be okay. Turned out not to be okay. Here are the final numbers from the DH position from the New York Mets. We'll start with OPS rank. They finished 23rd out of 30 major league teams in OPS. They were at an even 700. When it comes to batting average, the Mets finished 28th of 30 teams at DH with a 217 batting average. When it comes to home runs, it actually wasn't as bad as you think. They finished tied for 11th with 27 home runs out of the DH spot. Pop the champagne. (laughs) When it came to RBIs, they finished 18th with 83 RBIs. 
Uh, but overall, look, you look at OPS, you look at batting average, if you want to look at that, it was not good. They didn't get enough production out of the DH spot. That's what it came down to. And I think what's interesting looking back on it now is that ideally, ideally, you want to use the DH as a rotating spot to rest some of your players. And then also, you know, get at-bats to guys who are hot. You never want to be stuck with one guy who can't hit. And unfortunately, that's where the Mets were. They were stuck with one guy who didn't hit enough, and Daniel Vogelback. So they never really fixed the DH spot. And it was something you screamed a lot about, and you turned out to be right. My biggest worry, and the thing I was most nervous about with this team, was the depth of their pitching. Specifically their bullpen, but even like the depth starters in case guys got hurt. And that turned out to be true. Because ultimately, this bullpen was not good enough. It just wasn't. Their starting pitching depth, you could argue, is one of the biggest reasons they failed early in the season. Now, it's a chicken or egg thing. If Verlander's healthy and Quintana's healthy, and those guys are pitching in April, well, then you don't need the starting pitching depth. Then you're not relying on Tyler McGill and David Peterson. So you could blame the injuries and say, well, that's the real reason they failed. But if you had good starting pitching depth, and guys pitched better the way they did a year earlier, you could have overcome it. Because one of the biggest differences between 2022 and 2023 were the performance of their depth starting pitchers. Look at the numbers from 2022. David Peterson, when he filled in, in the times that they needed him to, and there were plenty of times, because DeGrom didn't pitch for the first half of the season, Max missed a bunch of time on the IL, the depth guy stepped up. As far as their bullpen is concerned, The New York Mets bullpen finished 22nd in ERA at 4.45. And that's with getting a really good first half from their closer at the time in David Robertson. They were still a bad bullpen. So I guess this is what happens when you lose as many games as you lose. You're right, Pete, and I'm right. Because they sucked in all of those areas that we were concerned about. Bullpen depth, starting pitching depth, and you... You were right in terms of needing to add a DH bat, which is why this next question, I think, is a layup for you. And if you don't answer it for yourself, I'll help you get it. <laughs> what do you got? Their biggest mistake during the offseason was not adding blank, the player. And there was a player you screamed about, and I just, just say it. Is this the Pat Myself on the Back podcast? Because I'm, I'm happy about this. J.D. Martinez. There it is. J.D. He would have fit exactly what you just said. <laughs> I mean, and listen, he had injury issues too at some crucial parts of the season. But in the end, his his overall numbers were extraordinary for just a pure DH. And guess what? They're in the playoffs. Yeah. And, you know, even though he missed a lot of time because he played 113 games, he had 33 home runs and drove in 103 runs. His numbers would have been the best on anybody on this team, including Alonzo and including Lindor. Higher OPS, 103 RBIs, 33 home runs. I can't say the Mets are a playoff team if they added J.D. Martinez, but their lineup would have been incredibly different having that bat in the middle of the order. Well, no, this is, this is something that I always argue. And listen, I understand I, we had to give some of the young kids some opportunities. Some people had – we had to watch some people just torture us on a daily basis because they, they, they maybe have pictures of the freaking GM. I don't know. But – 
you have to extend the lineup. And we literally had like three or four players that we could rely on all season long. And it was Alonzo, Lindor, Nimmo for, for someone that didn't walk as much, didn't really work the count as the way he did previous years. The power numbers pop. So I gave him credit there. But besides those three hitters, we had like spells here and there, which is what was not good enough. He didn't have enough protect, protection. Yeah, the, the guy I would have mentioned as the guy I was probably asking most for during the offseason did not have a great year. And that was probably Andrew Chafin with the Diamondbacks and both the Brewers. Like, he did not have a good year out of the bullpen. It's kind of a reminder that bullpen arms are very unpredictable. You know, you could look at a guy like Chafin who had a pretty good year last year in 2022 with Detroit and say, hey, that guy's a perfect fit. And then he comes out a year later at age 33 and he sucks. And it's part of the concern of bullpen arms that you never know year to year. And this is a broader point we'll talk more about during the offseason. I'm starting to think starting pitchers are becoming like that too. Where for years, you never know about bullpen arms. Year to year, you have no idea. And it's starting to feel like most starting pitchers are the same way. You have your rare ones, the rare ones that you can trust, just like you have the rare closers that you can trust. But so many times now, and look here, I'll give you a few examples. Look at Sandy Alcantara. And now he needs Tommy John surgery, and he's out for the year. Last year, the guy's going out winning the Cy Young. You know, Blake Snell from being mediocre to dominant winning the Cy Young. There's so much up and down when it comes to starting pitching. It's very, very unpredictable. That's why I don't have a great answer if I'm being fair to say, hey, this was the guy they needed to add. I screamed about it, and they didn't do it. I've had that before. I don't really have it this year because it was mostly bullpen arms and starting pitching arms like, hey, re-sign Jacob DeGrom, and let's face it, it would have been a disaster. Well, well real quick about the Chafin thing because I'm not saying that he would have been a significant arm because the first few months were actually not bad. His ERA going into June 25th was 2.73. I don't know what his whip whip. whip whip or strikeout totals were, but it was reasonable. And then he just fell off the face of the earth. And his ERA, I think, was somewhere at the high fours. It was at five, sometime, some, somewhere in five at one point in time. But the point is where the Mets needed him most, he might have actually helped. It was yeah. the tail of the season. He was terrible. Well, then, okay, great. He would have helped us in June and then in a pennant race would have killed us in August. Great. Well, <laughs> at least we were in a pennant race. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that would have been a positive. All right. He's no longer the manager of this team. The biggest critique of Buck Showalter from 2023. The biggest critique of Buck Showalter is that he lost his his edge. He wasn't smart. He didn't outsmart anybody this year. That goes for the umpires. That goes for the opposition. He just was an average manager, and he didn't show enough fight, and he didn't protect his players. He basically got served every which way whenever there was an issue whenever Scherzer's getting kicked out Drew Smith's getting kicked out he just walks up oh you're 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 right okay thanks and then Hmm. walks away that that's my biggest issue with him all season long there are individual moments I named one earlier that came against Toronto where he's not walking Vlad to get to Biggio and he didn't have a great answer and we could do that all day with any manager there's a lot of moves you can criticize ultimately it's not retaliating it's not retaliating for the amount of Mets that continue to get hit in year two. It happened in year one. We kind of let it go. It happens in year two, and it continues to be a trend where nobody did anything about it. And Francisco Lindor said in that Mike Puma article a few months ago, maybe it would have helped team camaraderie if they had a fight. Well, you're the manager of the team, 
And you're a manager that's been around a real long time. And I don't buy that managers never order a pitcher to hit a guy. Like, of course it happens. They'll never admit it because they could get suspended. But at some point, especially with your team struggling, don't you have to do something about it? And I think that tone, that pacifist tone that the Mets had as a team all year, well, that tone's set by the manager. So more than anything else, I would say that. I think at one point, if we had recorded this podcast a week and a half ago, we would have criticized him for his handling of Mark Vientos and his insistence on Daniel Vogelback. I choose to believe that leaked report. And I've got no reason to believe it because I've insisted all year that managers make their own lineup. I really believe that. With Aaron Boone, with Buck Showalter, they make their own lineup. Yes, they have more information than ever before. Yes, general managers have more input. But I still think the manager decides a lineup. So if I wanted to you know, prove myself correct, I'd say, I don't believe that report. But I do because I don't think Buck Showalter has any reason to lie. You know, he may be bitter against Billy Epler and the Mets, and he may want to manage the Anaheim Angels, but I don't think he would ever just flat out make something up. Plus, his words throughout the regular season echoed a guy that wanted versatility from the DH spot, and he wanted guys who could play positions on his roster. So I trust his words. So that critique of playing Vogelback and not trusting the young guys, look, not trusting the young guys was still a thing, and it's still a critique of Buck. But his insistence on playing Vogelback, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, that wasn't him. But now they're both gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it doesn't matter from that sense. Yeah, I, listen, I, I love Buck a lot. And I, I do feel like he, which is scary. And that this is, a, this is a topic for a different day. But if Buck Showalter, who is someone that's a very well-respected manager, was handcuffed like that by Billy Epler, what are we doing here? What, and I've always said that. I've always thought that the managers these days get, get kind of handcuffed by whatever the management's saying. But you would think if you're going to trust somebody, it's Buck freaking Showalter. Yeah. No, I get you. I get you. All right, a couple of more questions. The minor league player who you're most excited to see make their major league debut for the Mets in 2024 or in 2025. For me, it's Jet Williams. A guy whose first name is Jet. We'll start with that. That excites me. <laughs> Lazy. <A> Lazy take. <laughs> Dude, from the moment they drafted Jet Williams, I was excited. My kid was excited. I mean, it was, it was great. But here are the real reasons. He's five foot six with an eye like Wade Boggs. Like, he, so he's a little guy. He's got the Altuve, and he's right-handed like Altuve. But what's so incredible about Jet Williams, when you see what he's accomplished at Brooklyn this season and what he accomplished in Port St. Lucie, Florida this season, and he was only in Binghamton for a very short period of time, so I don't want to say what he accomplished in Binghamton, is that he gets on base. Like, his on-base percentage in Brooklyn was 450. His on-base percentage in St. Lucie was 422. Like, to have that kind of on-base percentage, to draw that many walks at such a ridiculously young age of 19 years old. And look, any guy that's going to make the major leagues at five foot six, you're going to love him. Look, there's a reason Altuve's loved. There was a reason Dustin Pedroia was loved. He's the little guy. And you could just tell he's going to play baseball like his ass is on fire. What position will he play? He's played a lot of shortstop. He's played a lot of center field. 
Those seem to be the two primaries. We'll see if they move him around a little bit next year. I think it's going to be tough for him to get to the majors in 2024. So it's probably more of a 2025 thing. But I'm just excited about a five foot six firecracker. And clearly, he comes up here and performs. He'll be the most popular man. He just will be. Guy like that will always be your most popular player. So whether it's next year or 2025, I'm most excited about Jet Williams. All right. Well, I'm going to go a different route here. It's because we don't have many of these starting pitchers. Mike Vassell, 6'5", I think he's 23 years old currently right now, which is ridiculous. These guys are so young. But um, <laughs> makes us feel old, dude. He's born in two thousand. It's it's scary. But that being said, though, like he had a, he did really well in AAA. I know he wasn't crushing it in the other leagues as as much, but he was he undeniably his best performances were in the AAA, and it's exciting because we don't have many good prospects, pitching prospects. So I need to see them. So I'm excited to see what he what he could bring. I, I think Double A was actually where he, he did the best. I think his ERA was three point seven. He had moment. He had moments at AAA. Like his overall numbers at AAA are not good. It's like a five and a half ERA. But if you go through his game logs, he had some, you know, pretty good starts. That's why sometimes numbers can be deceiving. But I I just I need to see a kid that's going to be especially a tall kid, a big kid like that. I want to see what he could do in the big leagues, and it's exciting to know that he's that close to making the bigs. I, I'm hoping to see him next year, and hopefully he could be somebody that actually could be in, at least in the back end of the rotation. That wouldn't be bad, right? Uh, they could use it. I mean, this this franchise can absolutely use adding, you know, young, homegrown starting pitching, even if they're not aces. You know, we always want guys to be aces and turn into that. But at this point, you take anything. I mean, geez, we need some real-life breathing starting pitch. Yeah, I, I think we're all sick of the Doug Petersons and Tyler McGill's. And no offense to those guys. I'm sure they're, they're, they're very lovable. But I'm tired, dude. Like, I cannot talk about the, David Peterson and Tyler McGill as as alternates or, like, you know, backups or whatever. Like, it's it's done. They're not working. We need to move to, move to the next step. It's not the bullpen either for them. No, I get you. All right, this is going to be a tough one. And it's our final question in our exit interview of the 2023 season. The best moment of 2023. Oh, my God. The best moment of 2023. When it ended. The season, when the season ended. <laughs> I mean, I, that was the, the relief. No, I mean. <sighs> I have a game, by the way. I okay. do have a game. You go first. You go first on this. All right. Here's my game for you. Now, tell me if anybody remembers this one. Because they did have some really, really good wins. I was thinking about. The homestand against Cleveland, you know, the homestand against Tampa Bay where they had those dramatic victories. But that isn't it. And I think if you go back to the old Rico Bronia archives, you'll see our reaction to this game. It was July 5th, 2023. The Mets were 39 and 46. They were playing a game against the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Kodai Sango was on the mound. And Kodai Sango was utterly brilliant. I mean, he was so good in this game. The problem was the Mets couldn't hit. And Kodai Senga made one mistake. He gave up a home run to Christian Walker in the bottom of the seventh inning that broke the 0-0 game up. It was one nothing, but Senga was dominant. And they wouldn't take him out. And not only did he finish through that seventh inning, he finished through the eighth inning. Pitched a nice, clean 1-2-3 bottom of the eighth inning. Eight innings, one run, 12 strikeouts. The problem was... The Mets are down one nothing, and Kodai Sang is about to lose. 
And the top of the ninth inning rolls around. And Starling Marte grounds out the second. This is all against Andrew Chafin, by the way, our guy, who we mentioned earlier in the pod. Starling Marte grounds out. Jeff McNeil flies out. Two outs. Nobody on. Mets are about to lose. Late at night. And Francisco Alvarez, and he did this a bunch. He did this a bunch in his rookie season. Went apo taco for a game-tying, stunning solo home run to make it 1-1. And then two batters later, Brett Beatty singles, next batter, and Mark Canna tripled off the fence in center field. Mets take a 2-1 lead. David Robertson, 1-2-3, good night. Mets beat the Diamondbacks 2-1. It was an incredible victory. Sangle was as brilliant as maybe he had been all season long. Alvarez was incredibly clutch. And at that point in the season, the Mets are starting to get hot. It was their fourth consecutive victory. They had already won a couple of games against the Giants. They had won the opener of the series the night before. And again, like I had mentioned earlier, there was a little bit of a hope that they were making a run. But when you think about the way they win a game like that, down to their final out, down to their final strike, Alvarez hitting a home run, Senga's brilliance, uh, being on the road almost added to it a little bit. Because you're sitting there, it's late at night, you're not in the ballpark, you're like, ah, am I going to go to sleep? And to stunningly, just out of nowhere, come back like that, I think that was the most pleased I was from the 2023 season. All right, so I think the high moment for me as a whole, this wasn't really because of the game as much. Because there was there was the one game where they, we, we, the Mets came back Vientos, I think, had that big hit when he first got called up. Alvarez, that was the Tampa series, I think, right? Yeah, in May? yeah, exactly. I think it was the eight-seven game. Was that what yep. it was? Yeah, the oh, the win off of P. P. Fairbanks. That was ridiculous. That, I think that's probably the high watermark as far as how a game went. But for me, I think the happiest I was the season and thought that there was so much to go forward was after the Philly sweep, June first. Max Scherzer goes seven innings, nine strikeouts, only gives up one one run. I think we beat up on, not so much on Tom Walker, Walker, but he only went four innings. But at that point in time, we finish and we're 30 and 27, and I, I'm feeling good about this team, and we're hitting June, and I'm like, we're about to take off. And that was like my high watermark of the season, and then we went and tanked it. <laughs> Even our happy moments from the season all end in depression. <laughs> like, oh, it was great. And then we lost. And then we died. And then the season was over. Yeah, the next game was the the, the Chris Bassett game where he's <laughs> like, you know what? I don't need to go see my kid get born. I'm going to go pitch my balls off and make sure that the Mets lose. Uh, so depressing. We will do our favorite wins and losses, rank them, of the season coming up a little bit later on during the offseason. Uh, that will be depressing. Even the wins will be depressing because – the wins led to what, ultimately? The start and stops of 2023. But that's our exit interview. Hopefully you feel more educated about what the hell happened and what went wrong with this 2023 season and how it was one of the worst seasons in the history of the franchise. Any thoughts, of course, you can email B at gmail.com, B at gmail.com. We'll be here at least twice a week throughout the off year, but usually a lot more than that because whenever there's breaking news and there's rumors and there's big news, we pop on and give you extra Rico. We actually do more Ricos during the offseason than we do during the regular season. So stay tuned wherever you download podcasts and keep an eye on it. We appreciate you listening to another offseason edition of Rico Bronya. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.